I'd like to uh, discuss with you this morning what I think is probably the strangest parable that the Lord ever told. I think the reason it's the strangest is that the hero of this parable is the bad guy, the uh, individual that Jesus points us to to imitate in this story is the villain of the piece. And because of that, because the featured character is a dishonest uh, business manager, a dishonest steward, there's probably no other parable that the Lord taught that's been interpreted so uh, differently with so many variations than this one. So I'd like to explore this parable with you this morning and look at some of the different ways people have interpreted it and then look at what the Lord says this means and examine some of the implications. I'd like you to turn to Luke 16 with me, if you would, and we will look at this parable, a parable which is often called the parable of the unjust steward or the parable of the unrighteous steward. It's in Luke chapter 16. It's a parable, a story, which Jesus uh, is telling, which he draws from everyday life. This one he draws from the world of cutthroat business competition. And it reminds us again of how in touch Jesus was with uh, every realm of life, how in touch he was with life in the raw. Starts in uh, verse 1, Jesus was saying to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward... And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. So there's a rich man, the man with evidently a sizable estate, and possibly an absentee landlord, perhaps someone who lived out of the country, and trusted the steward, or business manager we would call him today, to handle all of his financial affairs, a position of great responsibility and great trust. Well, evidently, the steward was lining his own pockets with some of his uh, master's wealth and uh, funneling some of his master's uh, income into uh, numbered Swiss bank accounts or wherever they had them in those days. And eventually, one of the other slaves of this master ratted on him and reported to the master when he was home from one of his vacations and said, Look, the steward that you uh, have hired is fleecing you. You need to do something about this. So the master evidently did some checking and discovered that, yes, this man was squandering his possessions. The word that uh, Jesus uses or that Luke uses for squandering here is a word that was used of a farmer scattering seed. Farmers would just dip into a bag and scatter seed over a field. And uh, that's the word that is used here to describe what this steward was doing. It's just as if he was taking the master's wealth that he'd accumulated over a lifetime, just scattering it like a farmer would scatter seed. And so the master calls the steward into his office and says, Okay, I'm on to what you're doing. I've tumbled to it. And I want you to know that you're fired. You're out of here. You're history. You've got three days to uh, get your desk cleaned off. And I want a report about where every dime that I've entrusted to you is gone. So you'd better bring me a report in three days or whatever and let me know exactly what's been going on. Well, this put the steward in a rather uh, awkward position. He was out of a job in a very short matter of time. And so he begins to consider his option in verse 3. The steward said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. So he began to examine his options. He said, well, one thing I could do is I could go back to uh, handling a pick and shovel, but I'm really not strong enough for that. My back and shoulders can't take that. I've been a pencil pusher all my life, so that's out. 
said, well, I could beg, but I've got too much pride, too much uh, dignity to do that. So then in verse 4, it's as if something dawns. He's suddenly struck with a flash of inspiration. He says, I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And this is what he did in verse 5. He summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And in verse 8, his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. Evidently what this man had done is he had found a uh, crafty way to secure his own future and prevent his master from doing anything about it. Some of the uh, research that we've uncovered uh, about business practices in the ancient Near East indicate that particularly in the Jewish culture, uh, charging interest was a bit of a problem because the law of Moses uh, uh, prohibited any Jew from charging a fellow Jew interest. A Jew could charge Gentiles as much as he could get away with, but it was illegal for them to charge a fellow countryman any interest. And so this naturally put sort of a crimp on uh, business practices in Palestine. But these Jewish businessmen were not to be uh, denied, and they'd found a way to work around this law so that the paper trail, if the IRS ever got onto it, would uh, follow, track right down the line. What they would do is evidently loan someone. We're dealing with commodities here, olive oil and wheat. And they would loan someone, say, 50 measures of olive oil. And since this was a precious commodity at that time, what they would do, instead of writing up the loan, instead of writing up the contract, for 50 measures of olive oil, they would write it up for 100 measures of olive oil. So that the paperwork would indicate that what had actually been loaned was not 50 measures of olive oil, which was the actual amount of the commodity which had traded hands, but 100 measures of olive oil. So that legally then, according to the paperwork in the files, the man was obligated to pay back what he had borrowed, which uh, was according to the loan agreement, 100 measures of oil. And evidently, this steward struck on this plan. He says, I will go around to each one of my debtors while I'm still the steward. He still had a couple of days to sort of clean house and get things in order. And so he began to go to each one of his master's debtors. Now, his master was a wealthy man. We're just told about what he did with two of them, but evidently he did this with every single debtor that his master had. And he went around to them and reduced the amount of their debt, reduced what they owed. And probably what he was doing, and Jesus' audience would, would realize this, is he was lopping off of these loan contracts, uh, contracts the interest that the master had worked into them. So this individual who had borrowed 50 measures of uh, oil was now only required to pay back exactly what he had physically borrowed from the master. Same with the man that had borrowed the measures of wheat. He was only required to pay back the 80 measures of wheat that he had borrowed, not the 100 measures of wheat that the paperwork indicated. And the steward still had the authority to do this. These were binding agreements. Now, normally you would expect a master, once he realized what the steward had done, is to send somebody over to break his thumbs or uh, send the cops after him or something like that. But all the unrighteous, uh, all the unrighteous owner could do was to praise this steward for his shrewdness. 
And I think that's because he realized that he'd been outsmarted. Uh, the steward was too uh, crafty for him. Not only had the steward uh, cut financial favors for every one of his master's debtors so that when he was turned out of his job, he could go to any one of a number of creditors and say, hey, do you remember that favor I did to you? And the guy would say, yeah, sure, you can come and work for me. I really appreciate what you did. Not only that, there wasn't anything that the master could do to get even with this guy. If he dragged him into court, then this whole sordid story of how he'd been charging this illegal interest would surface, and he couldn't afford to do that, so he just had to sort of grin and say, that is one sharp cookie, and the story was over. Now, that's how the story ends. The story ends with the praise of this rich man, this master, for uh, his steward. Now, because uh, this is such a strange uh, story, the hero, again, is the villain of the piece, the one who emerges as the hero of the story, as this unrighteous steward, there have been any any number of different interpretations that have been assigned uh, to this parable. Some people think that it's a general lesson about honesty, that if you are dishonest in your business practices, it eventually is going to uh, catch up to you. Other people think, well, no, it's not a lesson about that, but it's a general lesson about resourcefulness that that Jesus was trying to say to his hearers that a crisis is upon you because the Messiah, the judge, is here and a crisis is imminent and you'd better do whatever it takes to get your life squared away because judgment is coming. And so it would be a general uh, lesson to people to get their lives in order before the hammer falls. Other people think that it's a lesson about bringing the same sort of creativity that the unrighteous steward showed to the affairs of the kingdom to show the same kind of shrewdness that this man showed in managing his own financial affairs, bring that shrewdness, that creativity, that uh, uh, insight, uh, that prudence, that craftiness into managing the affairs of the kingdom. Others think that it's a rebuke of the Sadducees, that as this uh, unrighteous steward went about making concessions to his master's creditors, uh, so the Sadducees had made a number of concessions to the Roman authorities to keep their influence and position in Palestine. So some people think Jesus was rebuking them. Other people think he was going after the Pharisees, that the Pharisees thought they could buy God's favor with almsgiving, just as this unrighteous steward thought he could buy the favor of his friends by uh, cutting them a financial break. And then others think that it's a lesson about keeping the law, oddly enough, that as this unrighteous steward made this turnabout and saw to it that the master's business affairs were in line with the law, so the what we're to imitate is his example in obeying the law and changing his uh, method of doing business so that it conformed to the laws of God. So you can see there's any one of a number of alternatives, and all of them make a nice uh, point. But the real question is, what is the point that Jesus wanted us to draw from the story? One of the standard principles in biblical interpretation, which we're always trying to get across to our interns, is that the key issue in deciding what any passage means is what the author intended it to mean. Well, Jesus is the author of this parable, And we're fortunate in that he gives us an explanation, I believe, of what lesson he intends for us to get out of the story. Now, I think, first of all, it has something to do with money. The point of this story has something to do with money. You can see that in verse 14 when Luke tells us that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. So they were perceptive enough to realize that the point of this story had something to do with money, 
and that there were implications in this for themselves. And since they loved money, they scoffed and despised what the Lord said. And another thing I would point out is that in verse 8, the master is praising the steward because he acted shrewdly. It's one thing to say that he praised the unrighteous steward for acting shrewdly. That's one thing. But it's a different thing to say he praised the shrewd steward for acting dishonestly. See the difference there? So what this steward is being praised for is not his dishonesty, not his unrighteousness, but his shrewdness, his craftiness, his uh, thoughtfulness, his intelligence, his wisdom in the face of this circumstance. That's what Jesus is praising and asking for us to imitate. Now, before he gives us the explanation, he makes a editorial comment in verse 8 about this general subject of money. He says, the sons, in the end of verse 8, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, the word uh, kind there, if you have a New American Standard, uh, can also be translated generation or contemporaries, really, is the idea. He's saying that both the sons of this age and the sons of light, that is, unbelievers and believers, both the sons of this age and the sons of light have the same set of contemporaries, the people that we live with, the people that we work with, that we, that we play with, that live with us, that are in our offices and our neighborhoods. But he says, when it comes to money, the sons of this age are more shrewd, they're craftier about how they use their money in relationship to their contemporaries than the sons of light are. He says, no, it ought to be the other way around, but actually the shrewd people, the big-time operators when it comes to finances, the ones who are the most intelligent in the way they use their money, are actually the sons of this age. And that the sons of light in comparison, Jesus says, are naive and simplistic in their approach to these issues. I've got a good friend who is a stockbroker, and he told me once that there are four people that he really hates to give investment advice to. The first one, he says, are doctors. He says, I don't like to give them investment advice because you can't tell them anything. They think they know everything about everything. Then he says there are engineers. They're really tough to uh, give advice to because they overanalyze everything. They can never come to a point of decision because they always want more information to analyze before they make up their mind. Then he says there are uh, lawyers. They're difficult. Uh, excuse me, when for this. But there are lawyers, he says, uh, who are difficult because they're suspicious of every recommendation that you give them. And then the last group, he says, that are difficult to advise are pastors because they are so incredibly naive when it comes to uh, financial affairs. For some reason, he wanted to make sure that I knew this. But, uh, <laughs> but that's the same sort of thing that Jesus is saying to us here. Is he's saying that the sons of light are naive when it comes to financial affairs in comparison to the sons of this age. Now, it's striking to me that he describes a contrast here between unbelievers and believers as the difference between being a son of this age and a son of light. Now, a son of this age is someone whose horizons are bounded by this life. They've got 70 years to get the maximum bang out of their buck, and Jesus says they, in light of their future, they are extremely shrewd and crafty in this regard. They know how to maximize the future return on their investment. Now, in contrast, he says, the sons of light, by implication, have a much 
different future to look forward to. That the future for a son of light is not bounded by the parameters of this life. He has an eternal future to consider. And he says, in light of the future that the sons of light are planning for and investing for, they are much more naive and simplistic in planning for the future than the sons of this age are. And I think that's the point he's trying to make, is that the sons of this age know how to get the maximum future benefit out of whatever financial leverage and positions they have, whereas the sons of light tend to be naive and simplistic in this regard. Then I think in verse 9, Jesus tells us exactly what the point of this parable is. I want to read it to you twice so you'll be sure and get the point. And I say to you, and by the way, anytime Jesus uses that expression, truly I say to you, or I say to you, that's a red flag. That's his way of saying to us, uh, look out, gang, I'm going to drop a heavy one on you right here. This is a fastball down the middle. It says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let me read that again. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now Jesus is saying, this is the sense in which I want you to emulate this unrighteous steward. This is the point of comparison that I want to draw. That this unrighteous steward was crafty and shrewd at using his financial resources to make friends for the future. And he says, that's what I want you to do. Only you're looking at a different future than the unrighteous steward is. That his future was this age. But the future that I want you to look at is eternity. And the actions that I want you to imitate are the actions of using your resources, using your wealth, using your material possessions to make friends, not for this age, but for eternity. Jesus says, now that's the main point. That's the action of the steward that I want you to imitate. Now it's interesting that Jesus says what we are to use in doing this is unrighteous mammon or the mammon of unrighteousness. We're to make friends for ourselves, Jesus says, by means of using as an instrument the mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon is just an Aramaic word for wealth or property. And he describes it as wealth or property or money or material goods of unrighteousness, which is an odd way to describe it. The only time in the New Testament where money is described in quite those terms. And I think what Jesus means by this is that money or wealth has an inherent ability to draw us away from God. That's why there are so many warnings in the New Testament about uh, wealth and what it can do to us and how it can deaden the spirit and it can dull us to the things of the, of the spirit, that it's a dangerous thing uh, to possess. I read in the San Francisco Chronicle this week, uh, as you're aware, the Treasury Department has to take uh, old uh, currency out of circulation. When it gets old and beat up, they shred it and then dispose of it. Well, they've discovered that because of the lead and silver that's used in printing currency in the first place, that uh, old currency is actually a toxic waste, that the levels of lead and silver exceed the EPA standards, and so old money has to be deposited in hazardous waste dumps. And I thought that was, uh, I thought that was a bit intriguing, you know, that I, I think every piece of currency ought to come with that warning on it. That this, this may be dangerous uh, to your health. 
And I think that that's what Jesus means when he says that mammon, he calls it unrighteous mammon, or the mammon of unrighteousness, that has an inherent ability to draw our hearts away from the Lord. But what Jesus says, what I want you to do is I want you to use that unrighteous mammon and turn it on Satan, that's his primary tool to draw us away from the Lord, to tempt us with the uh, lure of things and pleasure and security and so forth, to use uh, his own sword and hoist him on his own petard, to use the mammon of unrighteousness, the instrument that Satan uses to draw us away from God, and to turn the tables on him and to use that to make friends for ourselves for eternity. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says we are to make friends for ourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness? Does he mean by this that we are to uh, bribe people into the kingdom? Should we go around with $20 bills hanging out of our pockets and say, look, if you'll go through the four laws with me, this 20 spot is yours. <laughs> and if you pray the prayer at the end, I'll double it. Uh, is that what Jesus is saying? Well, no, I don't think so. I think what Jesus is saying is that the way we are to look at everything we own, all of our possessions, uh, every material uh, good that we possess, we are to look at these as tools to reach out to people, to love them, and to serve them, and to minister to them, and to meet their needs. That's the basic thing that money is good for, to make it available to the Lord, to reach out to people, in the hopes that in so doing we can make an eternal friend, that God will use our generosity and use our love and our act of service with these things to awaken a man's heart to the things of the Spirit and draw him into the kingdom. And in so doing, we will gain an eternal friend. The interns uh, have been going through a uh, through the Bible course of study in which they will meditate on the entire Bible over the next three years. We just started that this summer. And for a good part of the summer, we've been in this section in Luke, this middle section in Luke. And you cannot help but be impressed as you read through this with the number of exhortations that Jesus makes to give to the poor. Over and over again, he hammers this home that one of the basic responsibilities of a disciple is to give to the poor. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. I'm struck with the fact that as I read the New Testament... There are, only two, there are only two directions that believers are instructed to give their money. One is to support people in ministry, one of my favorite biblical principles, by the way. But the other is to give to the poor. And it's stressed over and over again, our responsibility is to make our resources available to those uh, who are poor through no fault of their own. That's one direction we can, we can move. But I think beyond that, what Jesus is saying, the implication of this word is that we're to make all of our possessions, uh, to open our homes to people, to open our freezers and cupboards to people, uh, to make our uh, houses and our uh, cars and our trucks and our boats and our cabins and our condominiums and our airplanes, to make these available to people, to reach out to them, to love them and to serve them. In other words, to use all of our possessions for the primary purpose in life of making friends for eternity. Now, it makes all the difference in the world if you look at your possessions in this way as simply a tool to make friends for eternity rather than as an end in itself. It makes all the difference in how you look at it. I've got a good friend who uh, loaned his truck out once for the first time to a uh, junior high group. This was a number of years ago, and it came back uh, rather badly uh, dinged up. He'd loaned it to a responsible person, but 
came out with a busted uh, muffler. And his initial response was to really be upset about this. And he and his wife sat down and talked it over. And they finally realized that, hey, that pickup truck is just a hunk of metal that God has given to us to use to make friends for eternity. And so they resolved that they would continue to make it available in the same way. And so they loaned it out again to the same junior high group. And again, it came back all uh, dinged up. But they were in a much better position to handle their response this time than they were the first time because they'd resolved that this was simply a tool to use to make friends for eternity. I had an interesting experience with the same uh, principal uh, just last month when I spoke at the high school camp uh, up in Quaker Hill. Uh, I have a fetish about sunglasses. I'm 34 years old, and I've owned a lot of sunglasses in my time. And this spring, I found the ultimate pair of sunglasses. I mean, I have searched my life long for this pair of sunglasses and spent more money for this pair of sunglasses than I'd ever spent for a pair of sunglasses before. Well, at the high school camp, a couple of guys wanted to borrow my sunglasses because they're cool sunglasses. They wanted to borrow them for, uh, for this skit. And so I said, uh, with a lump in my throat, I said, sure thing. Well, they used these sunglasses for this uh, uh, serial skit, and the last day of the camp, uh, the guy who was wearing the sunglasses got a cream pie right in the face from a 270-pound offensive lineman for Boise High School. Now, they're neat sunglasses, but they were never intended to withstand that sort of impact, and uh, naturally, they broke in the process. And I remember my response, my initial response was really to be uh, ticked off. I was really upset about this. But I was kind of cornered because I had taught on this exact parable (laughs) a day before. Wasn't anything I could do, you know. And I just had to appreciate the Lord's sense of humor, you know. He's saying to me, Brian, do you you really believe this? Or is this, uh, you know, I want you to put your money where your mouth is here. See? makes all the difference in the world. Now, Jesus goes on to say that you are to do this, use mammon of unrighteousness to make friends for eternity, so that when it fails, in verse 9, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, it here is a reference to money. Well, when does money fail us? When does it let us down? When does it, uh, When do we come to the point where it can't do us any good any longer? Well, it's clearly when we die. The idea is to use the mammon of unrighteousness while you have it in your control to invest it for the future so that when it gives out, when it can't do you any good any longer, you will still gain a return on your investment. And Jesus is just reminding us here that we can't can't take it with us. That there's so little point in amassing wealth and property for our own use because we can't can't take it with us. Uh, One of my neighbors is... uh, Dennis Dixon, and in an insurance settlement, they were able to buy this uh, new-to-them used car, but very well taken care of, nice gold paint job, and Dennis has been very faithful to take care of this. He washes it and waxes it regularly, and I live just a couple of doors away, and I don't have nearly the same diligence with my car, so I'm always out there hassling Dennis about the work he does on his. I say, Dennis, it's going to burn. That's going to burn someday, and he'll just... He'd just look up at me and smile and say, yeah, but it's going to look pretty when it goes. Uh, you know, but we just laugh because uh, he knows better. You know, he knows he can't, uh, he can't take it with him. And the only thing that really counts is how he uses that uh, 
hunk of metal that the Lord has given him to make friends for eternity. I, was, uh, I found out a couple of weeks ago that when caretakers provide a burial suit for an individual, that these suits have a very interesting feature to them in that they have no pockets because where these people are going, they aren't going to need them. You know? And it's even a concession on the part of worldlings that they realize you just can't uh, take it with you. The only opportunity you have to really use it to get a return on your investment is now. Now, Jesus says if you do this, there will be people who will receive you, in the end of verse 9, into the eternal dwellings. That is, when you uh, step across the line and enter into the eternal uh, future, there will be people there who will welcome you into their homes uh, because of the way you have used the mammon of unrighteousness. Think, uh, Pick an obvious example. Many of you support Claude and Barbara Levitt in their work with the Trio Indians in South America. And God has done a great work among those people. There's a tremendous harvest among that, that people. Now, Jim and David and I, when we were down there in February, got to meet a lot of the people that have uh, become eternal friends of ours through the work of Claude and Barbara. Well, most of you will never have a chance to meet these people. But the day is coming, Jesus says, when they're going to have an eternal home. And when you uh, enter the kingdom, they're going to be there waiting for you. And this little five-foot trio Indian is going to come up to you and throw his arms around you and say, you know, I am here because of you. I want you to come into my place and I'll whip up some cassava bread and we'll have a party because I'm so excited to see you because you're responsible for me being here. The same is true for those that are supporting the Browns in Egypt. There are going to be Egyptian Muslims who are going to come up to you and turn that you've never had a chance to meet here who are going to throw their arms around you and say, I am here. Because of you, because you use the mammon of unrighteousness to make friends for eternity. And I want to tell you how excited and uh, happy I am to meet you and how grateful I am for you. Please come into my place. and Let's have a cup of tea and, and talk things over. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Uh, some of you who are growth group hosts, there will be people who, when you reach heaven, are going to want to return the favor. They're going to say, I'm here because you were so generous with your home and you opened it up to me and to my family. And I'm here because of that. Now I want you to I want you to come into my home. I want to be able to return the favor, the hospitality that you showed to me. So that's the basic thing that Jesus says money is good for, for making friends for eternity. Now he goes on quickly in verses ten to twelve to say that money is good for a second thing. He says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing, that is, material possessions, is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, notice how he describes our unrighteous mammon, it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to another, that is to the Lord. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So a second thing that Jesus says about money is that it's a test of our faithfulness and our dependability. Uh, that the key question Jesus says all of us as disciples ought to be asking ourselves is this. Am I faithful, dependable, reliable to use my unrighteous mammoth, whatever wealth and possessions I have, am I being faithful to use that to make friends for eternity. Now, the reason this is significant, Jesus says, is this is how God determines how much spiritual responsibility to give to us. You see that? He says these are not true riches, 
But Jesus uses this as a way to evaluate our faithfulness so that he can in turn entrust to us true riches. That is spiritual responsibility and spiritual influence uh, in the kingdom. Now that may be one of the things that's holding some of us in this room back this morning. That what God is waiting for, we long to have a position of expanding influence in the kingdom. And what he's waiting for is for us to demonstrate our faithfulness and reliability in this area. To use whatever we possess, how little or how much, to make friends for eternity. Now the last thing Jesus says in verse 13 is that all of us must make a choice in this area. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In our culture, of course, it's possible to hold down uh, two jobs, but in that culture it wasn't. If you were someone's slave, that master owned you 24 hours a day, and all of your energies were at his disposal. Now, Jesus is saying that's the way life works, that you must choose, each of us must choose a master. Now, the only two masters we have in life to choose between are either mammon or God. Now, either way, we're slaves. Do you see what he's saying there? That there is no such thing, really, as financial freedom. No matter how you slice it, you are a slave. Either of the things that you possess, you don't own them, they really possess you, or you're a slave of God. This is true for all of us. And the reason Jesus says we must make a choice is that one master will draw us away from the other. That if we love the mammon of unrighteousness, if we revolve our lives around that and make that the center of our activity and our efforts, then it will draw us away from God. It will dull us to the things of the Spirit. If, on the other hand, we serve God as our Lord, he will begin to draw us away from this clinging dependence that we have on material possessions. And he will begin to free us up from their clutch so that we can be generous and open-handed with the things that he's given us. But all of us, he says, must make a choice. You know, the Michelob people want to tell us that we can have it all. But that's a lie. You know, that's a bald-faced lie. You can't. We have to choose. Who is going to be our God, mammon or God? I have a good friend uh, here in this fellowship who told me several weeks ago about her concern about a very close friend of hers, the woman that led her to the Lord and established her in the faith and helped her to grow in, in the faith. woman who was ablaze with the love of Christ when uh, she met this woman. But she noticed a deterioration in her life over the last uh, three or four years. She and her husband, both professional people, both working, making good incomes, and their life slowly, almost imperceptibly, has begun to re revolve around ski vacations and, and uh, condos in the mountains and newer and faster cars and bigger and better uh, video equipment and so forth. And she's seen as their interest in these things, sort of the yuppie lifestyle has grown, their interest in the things of the spirit has declined to the point now where they have very little to talk about, very little in common, because they're just their hearts are revolving around two different things. That's what Jesus is warning us about. It's a seductive thing. And we constantly need to be watching ourselves that the mammon of unrighteousness is not becoming our Lord and drawing us away from the things of God. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 5 that uh, idolatry is still a present among us. We don't have little tin gods in our homes anymore. But Paul says there quite explicitly that covetousness is idolatry. 
that the God that we are tempted to worship today, the idol that we are tempted to worship today, is the mammon of unrighteousness. And Jesus pleads with us to make this choice. That's what I'd appeal to you to do this morning, is to consider in your own heart uh, your willingness to either renew yourself to this approach to life of making your uh, possessions available to God to make friends for eternity, or if you've never done that, to consider making that pledge today that you will from this day forward uh, pledge to grow in this regard in enabling God to set you loose from your possessions to make them uh, generously available to make friends for eternity.